Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. sanitizer out here and wipe everything down. We got that done. Coffee mugs wiped. Deconned up. I think we're good. Let's try this decaf and see if McCafe still 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 represents. Hmm. Ah, it's really good. I I do like McCafe. Well, I guess we better get started, shouldn't we? Hello, everybody. It's Todd Fredericks, D.O. of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, a great Ohio institution, uh, the oldest college in the Western territories. 1804 is our founding. Cutler Hall, if you ever come into beautiful Athens, Ohio, you need to go up to the top of the hill and look at Cutler. It's a beautiful thing. And um, it is uh, where uh, all things stem uh, at OU onto our various greens and um, just the great campus with our neo-Georgian architecture and lovely bricks and all the things we like coming to work to look at. We also have satellite campuses in Dublin and Cleveland with each their own flair and architectural differences. All of them are wonderful places for people to come and learn. Our PA students, our medical students, our outreach campuses in Zanesville, et cetera, uh, all places where higher learning occurs and people get... Um, down the road in terms of their uh, careers and education, and uh, it's a great place to work for. Um, Corona 3. Uh, I, I wouldn't be doing Melissa Thomas and her uh, discussion of um, the Amish and social determinants of health uh, any favors by uh, trying to get that edited this week. There's too much going on, and I just can't get around to all of it. And so I think uh, you guys will understand if I continue to do Corona updates. And again, I think I'm in a position to do so because I'm kind of seeing it from a bunch of different levels, and I, I'd like to share all that with you. Um, I'm going to go through the script today, and it's uh, hopefully making more sense in order, but um, let's talk about the social response so far. One of the uh, deep challenges for any disaster response, especially if disaster preparedness is going well uh, and um, mitigation efforts are going well, is that a population will tend not to think there was a problem. This is the real dilemma of an epidemiologist or a um, disaster response specialist, uh, physicians that look at this stuff, is that if we prepare really well, then oftentimes the public doesn't take these things too seriously because they say, well, you know, we've, we've been scared before, we've been scared before, we've been scared before. Um, it's a too, real challenge uh, for public affairs and other people to replace panic with preparation, uh, if you go to Utah, where I live uh, sometimes with my folks and where I just love uh, Utah, um, it's a wonderful place. Uh, the LDS Church, of course, has a known history for preparation, um, and it's part of the LDS uh, approach to life that they will stockpile things. And this is sort of a mentality within the people of Utah because they're, they're taught that. Um, it's not ubiquitous across the country, and it's something that myself, over several decades of being a military guy, I've always been concerned about, about civil defense. And, and this is all predictable. What people are doing out in society right now is all predictable because our epidemiologists, our disease intervention, our mitigation people, our border control people, all those people work diligently so that we don't end up with problems like Wuhan. So we don't end up with Ebola outbreaks. So we don't end up with that stuff. And it can give people a false sense of security. And so that's the big fight right now. I'd like to talk briefly about a tale of two governors. I watch uh, every day uh, Governor uh, DeWine and Governor Justice's briefs because I, I live in two worlds. I, I, I have a position in Ohio and I have a position in West Virginia, and I have to work in both places in different capacities. I, I applaud both governors, and I applaud both governors' public health people, uh, their representatives. Um, specifically, I'll mention Kathy Slemp, although her Ohio counterpart is no less good. Kathy is particularly good at communicating, and she has a way of of giving out information in a way that doesn't instill fear, instills confidence, while emphasizing the need for, for vigilance. And, and Kathy, if you happen to get word of this, I just appreciate everything you're doing because I think it is helping a great deal. Um, so far, the response in Ohio, again, those of you who are watching this are watching the tension between a serious medical problem, a pandemic disease of which we have very little defense right now other than known tested measures such as social isolation, 
such as good decon, decontamination, hygiene, you know, respiratory droplet control. These are really effective. We know that from, from, um, from South Korea. We know that from Hong Kong. We know that from mitigation efforts around China. And just so you know, I have been waiting for some time for a 3D printer. I did a Kickstarter. I like Kickstarter. I've gotten a couple products off of them that are reputable after research. And so I've been waiting for a very unique 3D printer called Ivy, I-V-I. And um, so you guys should all be aware of the fact that just today I got an update. Like normal out of the Ivy people, they're based in China. This is a Chinese design team doing this. And so if I'm getting updates about an Ivy printer out of China, testing is going on. People are doing things in China, which tells you that mitigation efforts are working there. And we're ahead of that curve if we do the right things, which is exactly what the Chinese, the South Koreans, the people in Hong Kong have all done, which is self-isolation, hygiene, uh, targeted testing, management of patients with uh, and reduction of, of uh, total uh, fatalities because of those measures. And I think it's really important. I should also tell you that when I drove into OU, and I knew I was safe to drive into OU because no one's here. So I'm essentially still self-isolated, right? There's nobody in the building except me because my studio's here. You know, I wore gloves when I touched the door, the, the doorknobs coming in, and then I took them off and I deconned everything, my phones, my my um, my coffee mug with Clorox wet wipes. Um, you should know why I have them. Because in my home office, because I am a family doctor, I have a home office and I have cleaning supplies. I have two or three canisters of Clorox wet wipes. This is preparation. This is... That whole thing was built out of the derecho that happened 10 years ago. And I thought, you know, when this stuff happens, not if, when it happens, I need to be able to be a family doctor. And that means if a patient can't get into town, I'm going to see them. And I need to have an office that's equipped to see patients for the 95% of the 95% need that's out there that a family doctor, a good general practitioner deals with. So we don't have complete collapse and chaos. That's why I have Clorox wet wipes, because I got them you know, months ago, they, before this even was aware, just to restock my normal stockage. I have office supplies. I have other things. I just routinely keep this, you know, you know, backup going because I might need it. And now that it's here, I'm not panicked. And I'm not just draining the grocery stores. I'm not doing that stuff. And I'll get to that in a little bit too, I suppose. But these two governors, the tale of two governors, Governor Justice, Governor DeWine, facing two very different problems right now. Governor, Ju- Governor DeWine, who has a full-blown outbreak of COVID in Ohio. No one really knows how many people are infected. There's estimates. So when the um, public health officers that you see briefing come out and say there's 100,000 cases, they're not really saying that. And if you listen to them carefully, what they're saying is we're estimating. That's what we think could be based upon our mathematical modeling. And just so you know, there's a whole fields of mathematical modeling that look at this and try to look at how disease spreads in a society. And that's where these best guesses come from. They're not ill-informed. They're based upon models, and models can be flawed. But generally speaking, models are really rigorously looked at. And math is our, our math people are good. I mean, you know, our math people are really good. We've got great math people in Ohio. We've got great physics departments, engineering departments, mathematical departments, people who do with this stuff all the time, public health folks that are really well-read in on us. So when they tell you that stuff, just understand, anytime someone wearing a white lab coat or speaking from a position of science says something, it is never absolute. No attorney wants to box themselves in on anything. Neither does any physician or any scientist. They will say, it's probable, or we estimate, or it's likely. When they say that, it's not a recipe for panic. It's a recipe to say what they're saying is on their modeling, they believe this is what's going on. Okay, let's work that problem, right? Let's work that problem. So I'm watching the maps, and I'm watching Governor DeWine. I'm watching Cuyahoga County and Stark and and, uh, Tuscarawas and and, um, Franklin and Butler, I'm watching these counties as they emerge, and it's an interesting social pattern. And I initially thought that Cleveland would not be hit as hard as Columbus because there's some different demographics going on in terms of mobility of populations there. But apparently I'm wrong. There are major interstates going in and out of Cleveland, and Cleveland is a place where a lot of business people are and are done. But I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen more of a problem in Columbus, to be honest. I, I sense that there's more traffic going through Columbus, but I could be wrong. This is something that will be studied. And, and uh, believe me, what's going on right now will be studied for a very long time. Uh, right now, um, I'm about to send a note to my staff down in the military folks in West Virginia saying we need to capture every product we build in a, in, in a sequential timeline so we can build our SOPs and refine them, make sure that we're on the right track. That's what all good 
public health people should be doing right now is just a big folder. Any document that comes out, just put it in the folder. You can look at it as you add it by clicking date added or whatever on your on your coordination scale and Outlook or whatever using Word. I guess, it, I guess it would be Finder, I guess. I don't know what it is. But the file stuff, you can look at the sequential dates. And when we go back retrospectively, we can correlate that with response efforts and effectiveness. That's one of the things you can do. Um, I told our social workers at the hospital the other day, I said, I hope some of you guys are looking into doing um, an autoethnography of the efficacy of tele-social work in times of pandemic disease because social work still needs to be done, Right. Going back to Richland Avenue, just so you guys know, for the Athens campus, they're building this uh, passenger or, uh, pedestrian overpass over on Richland Avenue. Why? Because the students tend to walk across the street on this incredibly busy intersection. They don't look up from their cell phones. It just cr- make, creates ca- crazy chaotic traffic. There's thousands of cars that go up Richland and even more thousands of students. And so what they've done is they're building this big overpass. It's actually a pedestrian underpass, but they're tearing it up. Those guys are out there working right now, right? So life is going on, and this is a really important thing uh, as we as we move through this this episode of rotations, COVID three, right? I want to sound ominous, and make no mistake, what you hear in me casually discussing this does not uh, undermine the seriousness which with I take which with I take this issue. Um, I'm going to reverse isolate myself now from now on with patients. I have no suspected patients. I have no suspected symptoms, but I'm moving in and out of a hospital, which means I don't know when I'm going to pick it up. If I do, I don't want to inadvertently sneeze or cough into a patient's face if I'm doing an HMP, if I'm doing something else with them. So I'm going to wear my mask. I'm going to tell them, look, I'm, I'm going to go in and out of the hospital all day long. I'm protecting you, and I don't want to inadvertently sneeze or cough and hit you. That's what this is about. I'm not afraid of you. I'm afraid of me giving something to you even before I know it. And these are effective measures that should be implemented because it is droplet spread. And so if you're asymptomatic with COVID and you cough and you're in close proximity to your patient trying to do an exam, you might infect them. So use wise choices. And this doesn't have to be an N95 or a PAPR. You guys want to look at PAPR. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But I mean, we don't have to go to that level here, but we certainly can, we can build our, uh, our response in a measured way in our clinics that say, look, we're in and out around a lot of people. It's just good if we happen to cough or sneeze, if we're, if we're not showing symptoms yet that we don't infect more people. Is it perfect? No. If I cough or sneeze into a surgical mask, there could be virus particles that, that come out of that, but I'll greatly mitigate the load. That viral load is critical. It's critical in HIV. It's critical in almost all viral infections. There are so more aggressive um, uh, diseases out there, measles, I believe, certainly, and Ebola, that it doesn't take hardly any viral particles to infect you. However, most viruses work that way. The higher the viral load you, re- you receive, the more likely you get infected because your immune system does try to fight these things off. So just be aware of that. And clinicians, I, I say, you know, it doesn't have to be an expensive mask. You probably have some around. But if you're seeing patients, no, oh, by the way, you know, it's your drop what you're trying to stop. So these are masks that can be worn throughout the day uh, because, it's your droplets, right? So you're not cross-contaminating patients. You're preventing your droplets from getting away from you. Uh, tale two governors. Again, praise for our governor's response in West Virginia. To this day, I, I haven't checked the numbers this morning. We have no known cases of COVID-19 in West Virginia, and we are aggressively attacking that on all fronts. Uh, right now, the social media campaign and blitz is out and ramping up aggressively to make sure we're screening everybody properly on the military side, that we're um, encouraging hygiene procedures, reminding people what they got to do, trying to keep Mama and Papa from starving to death from these morons that want to buy 18 loaves of bread because they think something's going to happen. I imagine if I called up Heiner's Bakery today, there are people making bread. I'm not plugging Heiner's. You know, Wonder Bread, whoever that is, and I forget who owns Wonder Bread, but whoever it is that's making bread is making bread today, right? There's no shortage of food. But there may be in the short term that could prevent Grandma and Grandpa, if you're in Appalachia, Mama, Papa, if, if you do that, you're depriving people of that. This morning in the brief, uh, and it's not going out of turn, um, the tag of West Virginia briefed a case that he'd heard about, a guy who bought 17 loaves of bread, and this people in the line said, could we have these two older people, could we, could we have a couple of those loaves? And, you know, this guy's basically not going to do it. And so one of the bread truck driver saw them and when they got outside the store, he availed them of samples he had. This is the type of thing that just infuriates me, and it was rightfully pointed out that 99% of the people in the population are not doing that. But we really need to have a sit-down chit-chat with the 1% that are because they're woefully misguided, and they're wrong, and they're 
they're a detraction. They should be they should be socially shunned. I'm not saying violence. I'm saying it should be very clear to people that there is a dissatisfaction when they behave that way. You know, if you want to buy two loaves of bread because you got three kids at home or four kids and you know you're going to go through peanut butter and jelly sandwiches like, you know, uh, crazy in the next couple of weeks, well, that's understandable. But if you're trying to corner the market on bread and 15 of those loaves are going to go moldy because you won't get to them, you're part of the problem. Uh, let's talk about compliance officer response. Now, one thing that's interesting is when you go to combat, and I experienced this because I deployed early into combat in Iraq. I was in the last set of rotations, last two that actually came out of Iraq. I was the second to the last because we had to leapfrog down before the people um, in the south could leapfrog down below us. So I was there at the very end in 2011 when the big, what I call the big flush occurred, when we decided to withdraw all forces out of Iraq. Um, that's a whole different discussion. But um, I was there. And I can tell you the war varies differently from the beginning to the end. In the beginning, the, uh, the fighters come out. Guys like me that are willing to break the glass and do whatever we got to do to get it done because we understand that if it doesn't play well on CNN in 72 hours, you shouldn't do it. It doesn't matter what the rule says. If you are following rules stringently and it kills people, it's a no-win situation because in the after-action review, you kill people because you didn't use common sense. So one thing I want to make sure people are sensitive of is our compliance officers. In most times in normal American society, Compliance officers are rigid, and they should be. They should be obsessive-compulsive about rigid standards, right? When they're trying to keep our, our massive infrastructure, specifically in healthcare, running and operating. But I can see the dilemma in a couple of the compliance officers I've looked at because they know that we're pushing the margins and we're breaking rules. And we're breaking rules because this is beyond rules right now in terms of the normal standard operating procedure, which is one of the reasons why I just mentioned everybody that's dealing with this should take the time to codify documents so they can look at the rules that need to be established for this. If you don't have a standard operating procedure or you've got one that's reflective of something else that this isn't, you need to update that and say, in this case, this is what we'll agree is regular and normal operating procedure in extraordinary circumstances. So, you know, you got to be patient with them because they're going to point out all the reasons why you're wrong. You have to have sound logic and rationale to say, but we're not wrong now because if we don't, if we do it the normal way, it will cost people their lives. Okay. Um, Yeah. Normally let's take a hypothetical. Let's say barring people from access to other people in healthcare institutions. Well, that could be construed as an infringement on on liberty, right? Um, But the problem is we know that People are people. They're, people are going to, as I like to say, people are going to do what people are going to do, right? Compliance is imperfect. And so sometimes you just have to clamp the, clamp the gate shut and say, we're only letting certain people in, certain people out. We'll touch on that a little bit in terms of test kits. Um, I think it's really important to remind medical students. I've gotten some feedback from medical students. I asked for that early on. There are medical students off the rotations everywhere. There are residents who are being kept from going to their residencies. It's variable around the country, but it is happening. I need to remind you all that we're in uncharted territory when it comes to accreditation, licensing, all that stuff. And you need to understand that you're not alone in this particular lifeboat. You are literally in the boat with thousands of other people who will have the same experience, who will have missed out on a rotation, who will have not, I'm thinking of the nursing students, right? Because they have to take their NCLEXs and stuff to, you know, those boards uh, the the accrediting institutions in the in the case of of the osteopathic community COCA, you know the Association of American Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine, they are going to have to rapidly get their head around. Well, what do we do with a med student that wasn't able to finish, um, that wasn't able to finish a month and a half of rotations? Are they still a competent physician? Will they still be okay? And you know what? They will be because there's historical precedent. And this is why being an American is a difficult thing right now if you're not one of these uh, weird introverted people like myself that likes history. We've done this before. In times of war, we've graduated people with three years, with, with three years of college. We've given them bachelor's degrees. I mean, we've done all that stuff, and they were fine. They were fine. A month and a half of missed rotations is not going to make a failed physician or nurse. But it will if, if uh, you guys aren't building policy pretty quickly to reassure the med students you're just adding more anxiety. A lot of these kids are going towards their boards right now. And frankly, I hate to say it because it's not the party line and I know it doesn't sound good, but the one silver lining in this for a lot of people is that this time off and, and, and non-mandatory direct class instruction right before board exams is giving our students a lot more time to study for boards. 
And predictably, we may see an increase in board scores. I don't know. We'll have to see that, and we'll look at that in reflection. But, um, you know, the accrediting agencies will. I'm just saying this as a direct message to med students and residents. The accrediting agencies will accommodate. And here's the reason why. It's simple math and physics, okay? There are interviews going on right now for the fall. There are med students who are going to come out of second year and go into clinical education. Okay, there are nursing students who are going to come out of their second year and go towards their clinical rotations. There's only so many spots. And so the fact of the matter is, is they can't double up these things. There's not enough spots. What to do? Well, what to do is you make an exception based upon a national emergency. And it's simple. You know, there might be a lot of ways for uh, nursing boards to give provisional or medical boards to give provisional licensure pending, if they really want to be obsessive compulsive about this, pending, um, you know, you, you take your boards, you pass them, you get your license, and the state says, for this cohort, we're giving you provisional licensure, um, you know, go out and practice with, a, with an attending that'll sign off on your work, whatever, and in 60 days, you'll have completed the, the requirements, we'll give you credit retroactively, but you still have your license, it's just provisional for, for a few months. Okay, I mean, that seems really unnecessary to me because honestly, if a kid misses, I mean, I never did inpatient pediatric neurology. Okay, I've done that before, right, out in practice. I didn't do a rotation in it. I wish I had have actually. I didn't do inpatient pediatric intensive care rotations. Have I dealt with that? Yes, I have in practice, but I had to learn it, right, because I didn't do a rotation in it. If a kid doesn't get an ER rotation or an ophthalmology rotation or a dermatology rotation, it will not make them a failure as a med student. So accrediting agencies, I hope you're working on that. And I hope you quickly put out information for our students who are worried about that and wonder, nursing, medical, PTs, you name it, what if I don't have enough contact hours? Is there going to be an exception made for me so I can graduate and get on with my life? They really need that right now, so I'm, I'm, I'm imploring you to do that. Okay, a brief break before I continue on. I want to talk about 15 Minutes to the Moon. Um, yesterday, um, our public affairs officer asked that I help her shoot a public service announcement uh, that'll happen more frequently. So I took off from clinic. I didn't. I wasn't even able to round yesterday. And so I told my partner, uh, I'm going to be in today as soon as I finish this and get it posted. And I'm going to do some pickup. Uh, normally, my clinical days are Tuesdays, Thursdays. I'm going to go in for a few hours today, pick up the slack. Um, and I'll get to 15 Minutes to the Moon in a second. But here's the thing. We have to pace ourselves, medical people, right? All of us are going to have to pitch in a little bit, pick up the paperwork. You know, if, if you've got a clinician that needs paperwork done, orders put in, that kind of thing, do it for them. Because if they're actually seeing patients directly, you can be putting orders in or helping them out um, without being an additional risk for patient contact. And we minimize that, but at the same time, take offloading those professionals. In, especially in primary care and the hospital service, that kind of thing. Whatever we can do to back each other up a little bit, even if for an hour a day takes some of the load off, and it will make it easier. And here's the reason why, and before I go to 15 minutes uh, to the moon. Guys, this is a marathon, and slow is smooth and smooth is fast. If you have an ER doctor that's fatigued or an intensivist or an infectious disease doctor that's fatigued and they don't put their N95s on right and they don't, or they don't put their PAPR on right, or they don't put on their PPE right because they're tired, they will get exposed. And if they're one of the unfortunate rare cases trending upwards in frequency with age, and we have a lot of older doctors, if they get sick, it's going to be bad because they're going to die uh, in some cases. And that further reduces availability at the end of this thing for people to pick up. For instance, we're going to have a lot of appointments to make up. We've had to cancel a lot of appointments. It's going to put a big burden on us on the on the left, I guess on the right end, if we read left to right, on the right end of this curve for clinicians and consultants to have to pick up that load, right? we got to keep them healthy. we got to be looking at this in a smart way. There's so much stress involved with this because people are going to do what people are going to do, and they will not listen to guidelines. These people on the Internet that are just constantly propagating conspiracy theories or the president dropped the ball or whatever, you're not helping because you're creating unnecessary panic and suspicion. If you're not practicing medicine anymore, please just be quiet. Really, please just be quiet. Because you're not helping, you're not, you're not seeing patients, you're not doing anything to help this process, and all your words are doing is interfering with people who are working really hard. I used to work in ER, urgent care. I've done it everywhere from combat clear up to ICUs. I understand what that fatigue looks like. I understand how mistakes are made. I understand how needle sticks occur. You get tired. And what we need to do 
is slow the pace down, make sure that our doctors are fed, sleeping, getting adequate downtime. People will wait, okay? And here's the thing. A test for COVID-19 takes three to four days to get back. So if you think a person has COVID-19 and LabCorp doesn't leave till 3, 8, 3 p.m. the next day, and it's at 9 o'clock at night, you don't have to do that test right now. You can do it the next morning or around noon, do it in a proper controlled fashion with proper PPE so you don't expose yourself, okay? Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. It's a, it's a well-known property. Anybody who deals in that world, you guys know who you are if you're listening to this. That, that term came out of the military operational community. I'm going to tell you right now, it works. That's why we do it. 15 Minutes to the Moon. 15 Minutes to the Moon is a wonderful production by the BBC. I've been listening to it because yesterday I, had, I took off from clinic. I got to that and I got sidetracked as I want to do. I took off for clinic, from clinic, stripped off all my clothes in the parking lot, had, under, had some gym shorts underneath, threw them in my bag in the bed of the truck because UV kills everything. Um, I'm washing all my clinical clothes separate from my home clothes, but I'm wearing a different set of scrubs every day. We don't have laundry service at our hospital for that. Uh, and keeping that stuff in the garage. So I'll contact it. My wife and children won't. It'll go in the washer and I'll wash it and then that way everybody's safe. Anyway, um, and then I bolted down to Charleston to work with our public affairs people. Well, I listen to podcasts and I catch up on audiobooks when I'm doing that. So it was a four hour round trip for about 20 minutes of, of production work down there and I got home. And I've been listening to BBC's 15 Minutes to the Moon. It is brilliant. It's lovely. It's about the Apollo program. It's wonderfully narrated by a physician. Uh, Kevin Fong, I think his name is. He's a physician, uh, and he does a beautiful job narrating it. So if you can find it on iTunes, which you can, it's free, 15 Minutes to the Moon. It's beautifully done, beautifully narrated. I can't give him enough credit. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, let's talk about production of test kits. Now, there's this widely circulating rumor about the president turned down WHO test kits and blah, 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 blah. It's bunko, okay? The WHO test kits were not accurate. Okay, they knew this, and the reagents were a problem. And so you got to remember that, that companies produce lab kits based upon the equilibrium of need. And so they have, right now, most of what we're thinking about is the end of flu season, but we have tons of flu tests. I mean, I can go in and get a flu, rapid reagent flu test, PCR test, anywhere. And I can do it in the office. And they're working on one for COVID, by the way. Uh, there's some people who think they have one that you can get to turn around in, in just a, a matter of hours now. But that's what happens with innovation in crisis, right? But the normal testing is three to four days to turn around. Okay, that's why you see these people where you see known cases, tested cases, et cetera. They're waiting for that return on those lab samples. You guys need to understand something about uh, production economies, okay? There's an equilibrium established for lab tests. You know, people are making lab tests based upon need. You don't want to make a thousand of what you don't need. They'll go bad, they'll expire, and you lose money, and it's expensive to do that. So when there's a global demand for test kits, and there's only a few manufacturers making them, right, they all have to ramp up production, and it takes time. And that's why you're seeing this sort of calculated distribution to states, entities, hospitals, and very strict guidelines for testing. And a medical student asked on one of the social media feeds I'm on, well, why aren't we testing the healthy people? You know, that way we'll know and, it, and they, they won't have a false sense of security, blah, 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 or whatever. And I said, well, so you have to understand something. You have a limited number of kits. There's very specific guidelines for testing. We want to discriminate it from flu, right, because there's two different treatment modalities. The, the protocols are being developed for COVID-19 are different from influenza. So we really want to know what we're treating. Who are we going to target? That person who's walking around that says, you know, I had a cough yesterday. Maybe I should get tested. Okay, you either do or don't have it, but you're not critically symptomatic. You're not going into an ICU, and we don't need to know how to give you a, a, an antiviral drug that may be different from what we give for flu. But for the person coming in with cough, fever, you know, they've got a sore throat, the symptoms we've learned that are common with COVID, we need to know, is that flu, common influenza, or is that COVID-19? And if so, if they're cohorting, meaning grouping patients with COVID into one place, we need to know where to put you. Because if all you have is influenza, then... You don't have to be with the COVID-19 people. But if you have COVID-19, we need you with the COVID-19 people while we treat you. That's, it's a very simple logic. In about four weeks, I suspect, I could be, you know, I, mean, I could be underestimating this or overestimating this, but about four weeks, I think you'll have as many test kits as you want. You'll do general screening of the population. It was also brought up to me by one of my buddies who's an absolute a guru on this stuff, total wonk, 
that they were doing nasal washings over in, in Dayton, and a negative flu test automatically triggers a PCR panel for respiratory illness. That doesn't include COVID-19, uh, or it may be now as they're ramping that up. But what that means is, let's say I swab someone for flu, and I get a negative on the flu back. The lab knows automatically to run the specialized testing that does a panel of respiratory illness so we can quickly identify what it is and what it is not. Uh, to include COVID-19, even as a separate test, that's a really good practice because we would like to know what we're, we're treating. And, and the lab companies have the ability to do generalized reporting with privacy concerns, but generalized reporting into the CDC, which means a CDC epidemiologist can shape this picture in a more refined fashion. So this is something that probably should be policy at this point, um, along with the policy recommendation I gave of us all wearing, if we're clinicians, even if I, I drove by the dermatologist's office today, the, the, the parking lot's packed. All those dermatologists should be wearing a mask in the office. I don't know if they are or not. They might be. That's great. But they should be wearing a mask because they will see 30 patients. But for the one patient they're looking at, or they'll see 70. I don't know. Dermatologists are really busy. If they see 70 patients in a day and one of them happened to sneeze on them, okay, they swap out their mask because they were contaminated. But if they develop even a little cough and they don't even know they're symptomatic, they don't want to be exposing patients potentially, right? until they know where the symptoms are and then they can quarantine or, or whatever. But reverse isolation of medical staff right now, even at a low level, just containing droplet spread will slow the progression of this disease. If we could put everybody in a PAPR and we had good biomedical support, which was changing out HEPA filters regularly, blah, 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 great. But a PAPR is an expensive piece of gear, right? And it should be used for people who are doing direct testing for COVID. People are working in ICUs. People are working in high-risk populations in ERs. People are doing, that's where that resource should be right now. For containing it you know public screenings of people who are symptomatic you know if we do these drive-through things that's one of the scary things about the drive-through deal now in china what they're doing is they're making these sort of uh, gloved isolation booths that a person steps into and the technician's actually outside of plastic working with rubber gloves through the plastic you know you guys may have seen this on the simpsons when they're working with nuclear material or they're working with something else that's dangerous they actually work with a rubber set of rubber gloves that are built into that. So they can actually do the testing of the patient without ever coming into direct physical contact or space contact with them. Um, a PAPR allows you some of that um, isolation. And that's where those, those researchers should go. So if you're just a, a general doctor uh, working in a relatively low-risk population, please don't be buying up PAPRs, okay, until that production gets up to speed. Follow the guidelines. Follow the testing. Uh, we talked about supply chain economics. I mean, this is going to be a real, I've mentioned it before, this is going to be a real call uh, to accountability for us in terms of who we outsource our production to. And it's not, it's a level at the national level. Where should our pharma, critical pharmaceuticals be made? Where should our critical PPE be made? Where should our critical surgical supplies be made? Are we willing to incur slightly higher costs in getting that stuff to be able to have a ready national stockpile? You know, we didn't outsource B-24 production to, uh, let's just pick any allied force, to the Brits during World War II. We didn't do that. We kept domestic armament production here because it was secure, it was reliable, and we knew we could count on it. And we ended up supplying the world with it because we could do that. Um, we are the nation that should have expertise critical PPE. And there should be several spots for this, right? The Chinese should have their resources. The Indian economy can probably do this as well. Um, the American economy, maybe Brazil, but continental resource countries that can that have these strategic capabilities and they keep them separate from one another. So if we have we have options, we don't put a demand on a single point source and we do it with critical stuff. And this is a high-level dialogue about what's critical and what's not. But I think everybody's finding out right now that um, you know personal protective equipment is pretty critical. You got to have that, right? So uh, I challenge people, especially healthcare policy people who are going into that field, you think about that. What supply chain economics, the good things about it, I mean, it's why we have iPhones. It's why I can go down and buy a hard drive today at Walmart. It's why you'll have bread on the shelves. Uh, if you don't have it now, it'll be there tomorrow. It's coming every single day, right? It, 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 but for certain things, we cannot rely on imports. We just can't because in the case of China, all their PPEs consumed trying to manage their outbreak. Well, where's ours? Well, it's in route from Amazon, from China, okay? It's just a thing. Uh, we talked about testing the ill. Okay, so let's put it in perspective. West Virginia, as of yesterday, had 500 test kits for 1.8 million people. So medical student, if you're listening to this, this is why we're not testing the well, okay? It, uh, testing the well is a nice to know. Hygiene, social isolation is how we prevent spread. And 
we have 500 test kits as of yesterday to manage the load of the people who get critically ill. More will come, but until that curve ramps up in terms of stock on hand, we don't waste them. We want to make very, very clear clinical decisions based upon what a person does have or doesn't have when they're symptomatic so we can guide treatment to the most efficacious place possible. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, I do know that uh, the National uh, uh, Strategic Medical Stockpile has lots of ventilators on hand. They've only had a few requests for them. So so far, we've not had to tap into the National Strategic Medical Stockpile, but they're there if we need them. It's going to be a little bit of a learning curve because I'm sure the vents won't necessarily be reflective of the types of vents that are used in every facility, but respiratory therapists are pretty smart people. They'll figure out how to use the vent properly and, and, the, and the ER people and the ICU people, and so that'll be fine. It's coming. Let's talk about worst-case scenario here, and this is for medical students and residents. You're going to see something, uh, and for doctors. Um, you're going to have to come face-to-face with, with triage, and you've seen reports of this. There's going to probably come a time in the next week or so where you're going to have to make decisions. I've got two patients in one vent, or I've got four, four vent tubes and I've got five patients. Who doesn't get one? And it will be a utilitarian calculus. It will be triage, okay, real triage, to sort, from the French word to sort. It will be real triage, guys. This is going to create moral trauma, and I'm a believer in moral trauma. I think whenever we're put in a position that we have to make an ethical decision that goes against what we believe to be the right thing, it is really hard on us, and it burns us out, and it makes us feel badly. I'm going to indemnify you right now. You can't, you cannot go there. You have to make a rational, objective decision amidst the screaming, amidst the disappointment, amidst, uh, amidst the terror, to make a decision between let's just say hypothetically, a young mother with three children and a 75, 80-year-old, and you need that vent. Um, you know, I don't want to complicate it by saying the 75, 80-year-old is the primary caregiver for their spouse. That makes it more complicated, right? But it's going to happen at some point or at some level, and it may happen spottily through the country. But I want to make sure I indemnify practitioners right now. It is what it is. You know, I'm a person of deep Christian faith. I believe in looking out for the weak and the innocent. I'm a physician because it's compatible with my faith. I believe in caring for the suffering, caring for the needy. But I'm also a combat physician. And there's times when our resources are outstripped by demand. The moral thing you can do is make the best choice you can. And again, I indemnify those doctors who find themselves in the, mor- in the moral dilemma make the best choice you can, and move on. Um, I'm worried about moral trauma at the end of this. If, if our mitigation efforts aren't as successful as we'd like, that there are going to be doctors that will need some help with that and resolving it. And I encourage all my colleagues to step out to them and tell them. It's happened to me before. I've had critical patients that have gone bad. Um, I've questioned, should I have done something differently? Did I do the right thing? And I've had colleagues compassionate enough to come and say, Todd, whatever, you couldn't have made any difference. It wouldn't have made any difference. It was deeply affecting to me And it helped me as a clinician to regain my confidence and my ability to make good decisions for other patients and move on. Medical people, um, administrators aren't going to do this for you. We have to do it for ourselves. We have to remind each other we're working in the surreal. There's a famous uh, scene in Saving Private Ryan where where, uh, Captain Miller's uh, platoon sergeant says, things have surely taken a turn for the surreal. And this is where you're at. Work with what you have. Okay? The known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. This is the world we're living in, and it changes day by day. It's confusing. It's stressful. Get the best information you can. Stay up to date. Listen to what the briefings are telling you and flow with it. And I'll give you something you do with that every day if you're certainly in the ER. The American Heart Association changes its um, its uh, CPR guidelines or its um, its guidelines every five years. We're all used to that. And they do change because they're based upon research. Research is imperfect. We do the best we can, right? So is it more compressions or ventilations? My understanding is the next AHA or American Heart Association update will include more focus on ventilatory support. Well, the last iteration was compressions, compressions, compressions. We're learning, okay? You can't know what you don't know. So go with the guidelines because that's the best we got right now. And then make good, informed choices. This is a shout-out to uh, General Batiste. John Batiste, he briefed us going into Iraq in 2004 before we crossed the berm. We were going to have to engage uh, you know, hostile people. 
And General Batiste said the following. He said, if it looks like a cobra ready to strike, kill it. Put two in the chest and one in the head. He was very blunt, and he repeated himself for emphasis. And as a physician, I was sitting next to my PA or standing there in the desert in Kuwait, and I, I looked at him and I said, did he just say that? And my PA looked at me and nodded his head, and I, I said, wow. And then the general continued, and he said, I don't want anybody dying. He says, there's nothing worth dying for in Iraq. He said, I don't want you shooting people or just carrying a rifle. It's their right to carry protection. But if they're looking, if they're raising that weapon to engage you, take them down. And what he's trying to say in reference to COVID-19 is make the hard right over the easy wrong. Okay? Make the hard right over the easy wrong. We have a lot of people to protect here. We have our elderly to protect. We have our immune compromised. We have our chemotherapy patients. We have people who really need us to make the hard rights over the easy wrongs and worry about the paperwork later. Worry about the compliance later. Gather the information. Write it down collectively, objectively. Why do we make that decision? Document and say, I did it because of this. This is what I was seeing at the time. And understand that you might get, you might get stung a little bit, but you're not going to get completely burned because we are in new territory here. We've got a country of 330 million people with thousands of doctors and nurses and, and public health officials and conferences and, and agreement by consensus and advice coming in from multiple sources of experts. It all has to be filtered and looked at and judged on its, on its relative merit on the surface, and then a guideline gets published. And it may be that in five or 10 years, when we really have a handle on COVID-19, in retrospect, we say, yeah, we did that therapy, but it wasn't truly effective, but we didn't know at the time. It's okay. You know, we used to bloodlet people. We basically killed George Washington by doing that, right? He had um, what probably epiglottitis, and his doctors, you know, were bloodletting him. Or I think it was, you know, tonsillar abscess or something like that. It was terrible. And, he, you know, they bloodlet him to death, basically. I mean... These were standards of care until we learned not to. Tourniquets, that's my, my preaching point. You know, I'm a tourniquet guy. I learned that. It saves lives. And yet we're still trying to get people to stop the bleed and citizenaid.org and all these other people to understand tourniquets save lives. And we still have doctors that are holdouts saying, well, no, it can't possibly be. I was taught that they kill people or that you make you lose your arms. Well, none of the data shows that, right? None of the data shows that. We've got thousands of cases of people who survived because of tourniquets. No cases of people who are losing limbs right and left because of a tourniquet applied for an hour or two to control their bleeding. And you keep siloing yourself in a parochial fashion into the past. That's not what science is about. It's about learning, testing, relearning, testing, moving on, developing better standards. That's what the AHA does with your CPR guidelines. And it's okay. We all comply with it. This is the same thing. We talked about prepare, uh, pro, talked about moral trauma. We talked about the double sort of preparedness. At the end of this thing, if we're really successful and we mitigate a whole bunch of mammas and papas dying and chemotherapy patients are still alive and we don't have a bunch of comorbidity patients that have lost their lives, we, uh, we run the risk of society thinking, well, that was overblown. Society, you need to understand, you walking around daily to go get your groceries, if you're a young, healthy person, this is not the disease that's going to hurt you. But your actions could contaminate someone who it could hurt. Okay? This is about protecting mamas and papas, grandmas and grandpas. That's what it's really about. Think of anybody you know that has medical problems, children, adult, older person. That's who you're trying to protect. So if you're absolutely selfish and self-absorbed, then you're going to go about and not wash your hands. You're going to stock, you're going to go touch your grandma, and you're going to hug her, and you're going to do all this stuff until this thing's passed. But I don't think most of you are like that. I think most of you are going to understand this is about protecting grandma and grandpa. And it's for about mm, six to eight weeks. And after that, we'll, when, when the all clear is given and we've reduced the total amount of incidents in society and we've been successful, which I think we will be. I think we're getting ground every day in people's understanding. And we haven't starved grandma and grandpa to death because we keep buying up, you know, 10,000 rolls of toilet paper and a, a truckload full of, of uh, bread every day. If we get past that, we're going to have a lot of lessons learned. We're going to be a cleaner, more hygienic, and more prepared society. Uh, so uh, I'm sure I'll have more to update. Um, but again, I think I've hit the big points. Guys, again, for all you practitioners, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. For residents that have been released from your residencies to, to sheltered home, understand that the impact on, on health care providers could be extreme. 
the reason why we need to protect you is the same reason why recently a colleague sent elderly physicians home. They may be needed. If us younger guys in our 50s succumb to this thing, those older people that we isolated and quarantined on the guidelines, Governor DeWine, if you're over 65, stay home. That includes clinicians, okay? Sit there, be reading, learning about it, because when this is all said and done, you know what? Uh, huh. We may need you back for a few years until the younger folks can get, get get ramped up. You residents, you may be tasked with coming in six months, a year before your residency's up, and you may be told, hey, we're going to let you take your board exams and let you move into practice. We need the help. That's what this is really about. Uh, one last thing I would tell uh, all planners, I'm, I'm changing my opinion of telemedicine. Actually, I never did have a differing opinion. In terms of disaster and combat, I love telemedicine. In terms of day-to-day operations, I don't like telemedicine. I think you can overlook too many things. But um, state agencies, you really need to ramp up your IT people, get them to where Skype telemedicine can be done, especially for the general consults, the stuff that's not life-threatening, critical. Person, I've got an ingrown toenail. Okay, buddy, take your iPhone, show me the toe. Uh, do this, this, and this. If a nurse is there, help me out. Tell me what you're seeing. Show me a picture. We really need that. We need robust telemedicine support. As part of national civil defense, defense infrastructure, we need to lay fiber underground in every community. Okay? This BS of continuing DSL because companies like Frontier or whoever's running this stuff won't lay fiber out to smaller communities, wrong. That's got to be funded and updated, and you've got to do your job so we have the ability. So, for instance, for me, I could do telemedicine if I'm exposed. I can still continue to treat my patients at 80% capacity by relying on telemedicine from home without exposing them. And we don't end up impacting to the same degree as if I'm completely out of play because I can't communicate or see my patients and I have to be home for 14 days. If I have fiber, I can do direct Skype calls with patients. Tell me what the symptoms are today. And I can put my orders in through uh, uh, virtual... um, uh, virtual private networks, VPNs. I can put my orders in, the nurses can take them off, and we can continue to treat patients. Uh, a national call-out, a state call-out, fiber to every community. Make sure that all of us have high-speed internet access so that we can rapidly continue operations remotely if necessary. It will greatly help the demand on clinicians. Same thing with helplines. If I've got patients that can call me I can advise them and say, no, nah, it's not time to go to the ER yet. This is what you're going to watch for. That takes the load off the ER doctors. It takes the load off the ICU doctors. It takes the load off all the critical specialists right now. So with that, uh, my phone is blowing up right now. I've got people calling and calling and calling. I'm going to end this episode of Rotations COVID-3. Um, wash your hands. Maintain six to seven feet of uh, separate isolation. If you have allergies, you have any kind of cough, anything like that, and, you, and you're pretty sure it's not COVID because you haven't been, you haven't been around anything, just, just if you're seeing patients, make sure you're reverse isolating, even if you're not coughing, right? Just as a rule, get in the habit of putting a simple surgical mask on when you're seeing patients right now because if you inadvertently sneeze and you've been out in the community and you're infected, you could infect patients. You won't know it, right? Because you're asymptomatic, they're asymptomatic. Um, I'm mostly concerned about this, about the confined populations, the nursing homes, the uh, prisons, the psychiatric facilities, places where we have a closed population that's relatively protected, but we have a lot of staff coming in and out. I think it's, it's a wise idea. I'll leave that to the state public health commissioners to make that decision for widespread guidance. Individually, I'm electing to do it. I think it's maybe a wise idea. It will slow the spread and, as we say, flatten the curve. And with that, I'll leave you. Bye.
Cortations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media medicine family of medical storytelling. Opinions and comments expressed in Cortations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks, hosted by Todd Fredericks, narrated by Todd Fredericks. Basically, Todd Fredericks did everything in this episode. Uh, and uh, Brian Plough, we throw him in because he is a producer and a great guy. Uh, our producer at large is Nisarg Bakshi. Again, where are you, Nisarg? Rotations is periodically co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content editor creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. That said, I will ask you to please share widely, because I think it's important. Get it out on Facebook. Get it out on Twitter. Get it out where Instagram. I don't I don't know what you guys are using out there, you kids today, but get it out there and share it with your friends because we like it and we think it's pretty fun. Uh, we welcome any comments and you can contact us by emailing us at uh, rotationspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, actually better, TR Fredericks on Facebook is good. Uh, don't turn it into a, a hate fest, okay? It's my private, it's my personal Facebook page. It's it's puppies and, and fuzzy objects. But share uh, what you think of Rotations. Um, or you can go to at RotationsPCast on Twitter. You can also get me at Medical Cinema. And if you want to get a hold of Plow, it's at Prof Plow, P-R-O-F-P-L-O-W. Uh, and you can also visit our website, mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. 